Hello and welcome to the podcast, The Lotus Eaters, episode, which episode is this? 720 on today, the 16th of August, 2023. I'm your host, Harry, joined today by special guest, Charlie. Good afternoon. And also special guest, Connor. Yes, I did no prep for this podcast and we just decided to make it a lad's hour. Yeah, why not? <laughs> it worked well last week, so yeah. why not do it again? So we've lost the sunglasses this week, though, unfortunately. But we have regained they our They are in the office if someone wants to go and run and grab <laughs> Please my Please don't sunglasses. run and grab them. Please, Please do someone get the sunglasses. Please don't lob them my way. No, uh, we're going to be talking about how Germany has gone full democracy, how statistics can be used to prove anything, including how you're gay. And we're also going to be talking about how we do not get an identity, whereas everybody else from the rest of the world gets an identity. Before we get into that, though, I just need to make an announcement that our video comments currently aren't working on the website. We've only got one video comment to go over at the end of this episode, um, and that's because of some technical issues that we're experiencing. So we should get that fixed within about a day or two. But in the meantime, if you'd like to send in your video comments, you can send them to video.editor at lotuseaters.com via email. So with all that, shall we get into it? Let's. All right, then. So Germany's decided that they want to go full liberal democracy because they have decided that they might just outright ban a democratic political party because this is how democracy works. When you peel back all the layers and obfuscation, this is what happens, is you get the uniparty, who all believe the same things behind the scenes, but then just split themselves into two mildly varying parties that everybody gets to choose who to vote for, and then anybody else who exists even slightly to the left or right of that gets banned. This is the Schmittian position of that there are certain issues beyond reproach, declared beyond debate, and so if you fall outside those parameters, you're no longer part of the democracy anymore. Yeah, you're right to bring up Schmidt, because this is just, I mean, he's just laughing right now. Because this is just Wherever pure friend, is. yeah, yeah. friend-enemy distinction on display in the clearest possible terms. You know, it's only what the regime allows. That you know, those are your options. Yeah, so you, there's no meaningful choice. You either get banned, or we make life massively difficult for you to the point where you'll just give up, or preferably die in a hole somewhere. This is how these politicians tend to look at it. Or get beat up by Antifa. Oh well, many such cases. Mm. Before I get any further into it, I think it's relevant to point you to all to the latest episode of Brokenomics, which is a discussion between Dan and Carl. It was somewhat improvised because there were some issues with what Dan originally had planned, but it turned out really well because they talked about the rot within culture and uh, different varying levels of optimism for the future, and it's been named quite appropriately decivilization. And what we're experiencing in the West at the moment, in Europe especially, is certainly what I would describe as decivilization, because while we're going to be focusing on the AFD for this segment, I think it's first good to remind everybody that recently the banks just decided that Nigel Farage shouldn't have a bank account. This is something that just happened out of nowhere, but I think they made a mistake with this, because Nigel Farage has proven in the past quite a few times he's actually one of the better political actors in the UK for organizing and getting momentum going and corralling all of the MPs who are on his side to get stuff done. They picked too high a target as well. So they did a 40-page briefing on all of the transgressions against progressivism that he mm. did. One of, one of the officials was an out-and-out Remainer, and that's obviously the flagship thing that most of the press went for because Farage being Mr. Brexit. But what was hidden underneath that was this is a flashpoint test case for how they're going to roll out ESG and treat their customers as liabilities for their ESG score if you say the wrong thing on social media. And so Farage, being that he's such a presence, was one of the greatest liabilities, but they just jumped the gun too early and made him a public example and he bit oh, back. absolutely. If this had been done to anybody else who was of much lower profile than Nigel Farage, they probably would have gotten away with it. Yes. This wouldn't have happened to 
anybody else who would have been able to bring kick up the same stink that Farage could. But Farage can kick up the stink because he is a very popular and very public figure. And so he is able to fight back against it. So just to um, clarify what Connor was talking about there. So the private bank, Coots, is that how you pronounce yes. it? Coots had uh, shook Farage's accounts in part because it believed that the Brexiteers' views were at odds with our position as an inclusive organization, apparently, and I wasn't aware of this, to the point where they had 40 pages worth of incursions. Nat West, who owns Coots, faced criticism from uh, Rishi Sunak and other senior politicians for failing to respect an individual's right to freedom of expression, which, of course, only ever matters if it's somebody on their same class who uh, gets in trouble for these sorts of things. Because, you know, MPs, they see normal people like you or I being debanked, and they think, maybe, maybe I should care. Maybe this is something I should care about. They see another MP get debanked, and they go, oh, God, that could happen to me. And that's when they start to panic and start to organize politically. Well, even just the lower runs of Reform UK, and Richard Tice and Ben Habib have both had their bank accounts closed. Um, Lawrence Fox had the Reclaim bank account closed. They just know that Farage, as a political spearhead, which in the 2019 election, had he not stood the Brexit party aside, it would have significantly hampered the Tories' massive electoral margin. They know that he's an existential threat to the Tory party and that some of their backbenchers actually put more stock in Farage at this point than in Rishi Sunak. So they know they had to fall in line with that. Otherwise, they're going it's to alienate It's not difficult to sympathise with those backbenchers. No, they're, they're one of the, the few remaining good backbenchers. But again, because of the precarious nature of the Tories' electoral standing, even their seats are in... Are in uh, Test station at the moment. Some of them, some of them are red wall people, and so they're like, "Well, I might not even be here next election either." On this story as well, I mean, we've already raised the idea of the friend enemy distinction. That is obviously very relevant to this story. But there's also obviously Marcuse's repressive tolerance, because yeah. in that that what you just read out, it says we are a you know it doesn't align with our values as an inclusive organisation. Well, inclusive only as far as you know you deem it, you deem them worthy, exclusive you know, not, by any other name. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. we've determined the exception. Yeah, well, so, and, we and you fall within the exception. So, mm -hmm. sorry, goodbye. But once again, it turns out they messed with the wrong guy because now the Financial Conduct Authority has been writing to MPs, peers, and other public figures, including Farage, to ask them whether they've been treated poorly by bankers after it emerged that the Brexiteers' accounts have been closed. Yada, yada. A spokeswoman said the FCA was keen to hear from MPs about any problems they have encountered with lenders owing to their political status. One of the reasons as well that they can do this is because NatWest has a, I think the government has a 30% stake in it. Mm -hmm. So it's unlike most of the banks. NatWest is the parent company of Coots. So that means they can actually exercise more legislative leverage over this I particular bank. They mention that in this article, if I scroll down a bit, it actually has 38% uh, owned after the 45.5 billion pound bailout from 2008. So that's great to know that uh, taxpayer funded bank has been doing this to an incredibly wildly popular public figure. So it emerged that Coots had also lost two senior executives recently. Peter Flavel, 63, the chief executive, left last month after the revelations about Farage's account. Andrew Kyle, 42, the finance director, left in March, but his departure was not disclosed until a filing on Companies House website yesterday. It is understood that the departure of Kyle is not related to the banking controversy. His successor is expected to be announced soon. So it is actually good mm. that somebody has been fired for this or left, chosen to step down. Because what you want to do with institutions like this, because of the fact that they are not your friend, they are staffed entirely by your enemies, well, you want your enemies to lose their jobs mm. when they act in a, such a hostile way. And then you want to preferably replace them with your friends, but at least we got halfway there this time. Well, that is the issue. I mean, James Burnham talks about this in the managerial revolution, about how clearing out... <clears throat> 
a leader figure is easy because you could just get rid of one person. But clearing out a committee of managers is clearing out the bureaucracy. Yeah, is borderline impossible. Because while it's good, swamp almost. Yeah. It's good, obviously, that Farage has taken the scalps that he has. That's a victory, and we should take that. But the people that are going to replace the people who have left are going to be of the same stripe. They're going to be the same type of person. So I don't want to, you know, I don't want to bring us down here. But no, but the incentive structure remains in place. Again, exactly. It comes back yeah. to the ESG system. If you look at their 2021 earnings report, they literally cite our partner BlackRock has gotten us onto ESG, which is why we're a net zero committed and diverse and inclusive bank. Yeah. And so without taking the capital and the legal framework away from ESG, you've still got all of the liquid in the structure. You've got to take uh, away the, the boundaries of the structure and then the liquid will just dissipate. And mm. people mainly follow incentives rather than ideas. So with all the money flowing into this system, it's the only reason why these managerial midwits are being blown in this particular direction. Mm. If you took away the ideological boundaries and just put them in the direction of making money, then we wouldn't have this persecution in the first place. Yeah, really what Farage needs to do is start to apply pressure to have more people fired have more people cleared out and to have his own people positioned in these positions instead. Mm. There's really what he should be doing, but we'll see what goes on in the future and if the FCA are actually a useful organization for this, because I don't trust the regulators no. at all either. But once again, someone got fired, so that's a nice first step. But how is political opposition being treated in Germany? Well, well let's look at the AFD. We have spoken about the AFD a number of times. I know that this segment that Callum did, was mainly about Mr. Crab's AI singing songs. But what? did you not watch this segment? No. Callum has a very esoteric manner when it comes to um, d dancing around particular subjects and getting to the point of them. It was very entertaining. But at the end of this, we discussed how the AFD have been making major strides in German politics. They have now become the second biggest party in Germany. And uh, many are labeling them as being far right. But really, they are just center-right at best. They have come out and they said, we don't want public funds being used to house migrants who shouldn't be here in the first place. And while we're on the subject of migrants, maybe we shouldn't be bringing in millions of them every year. This is enough for them to be labeled as Nazis, as you would imagine. And uh, we've actually done an interview with them in the past. Carl and Callum have both been quite close to the AFD and speaking to them. And whenever they discuss the AFD, they remind me of one thing, that these are just normal, friendly German chaps. They're not going around in jackboots, stomping around, goose-stepping and throwing up Roman salutes or anything like that. They're just people who love their country, which is honestly something unusual in Germany. If you love your country in Germany, they do just kind of assume that you are a Nazi. Um, and they don't want to see their country be destroyed by mass migration, as is only sensible for them. So this is an interview back from 2020 with the Vadim Dirksen, and you can find this for free on the website. I'd highly recommend you check it out, where he discussed his experiences being assaulted by Antifa, which is something that is very common for these politicians to experience, where he was actually stabbed by one of them as he was trying to attend a film festival, which he and some of the other members of the AFD youth party, uh, youth um, division, had been invited to. They've been expressly invited to it. A load of black block style Antifa goons show up, attack them, stab him in the arm. The police look into it. Nothing comes of it. But we also know that only certain political stabbings matter because Joe Cox is stabbing over in the UK by a delusional schizophrenic who is a self-purported white nationalist. That has become ubiquitous with the Brexit era and the rise of the far right. But as soon as the fella from South End gets stabbed, Sir David Amos, by a migrant 
son of some foreign diplomat in the name of Islamism. Oh, it's it's not real Islam. Don't worry, migrants. It's just because we didn't give them enough pool tables and we didn't assimilate them fast enough that this poor MP got murdered. Only certain political motivations matter. When Manchester Arena bombings. It's not. Uh, maybe we should do something to stop the what caused this in the first place. It's don't look back in anger. We have the. I forget. We did the segment a few weeks ago yes. where Callum was talking about the large article where it turned out that the British intelligence services actually have contingency plans in place for whenever any kind of foreign or Islamic terrorism happens to try to divert energy and attention away from looking at the actual causes of these problems and any solutions to them because those solutions would not be diverse or inclusive enough and trying to turn it into a picture of unity between all of the different new identities within Britain that make up our new more inclusive British identity. Yes. It's to disgusting. Re rehabilitate the reputation of the ailing Muslim community that may have run interference either by scripture or by some elements that would not profess to have grooming gangs or terrorists in their midst. And just on don't look back in anger, I mean, I heard Morgoth talk about this once. Like, it, we have to understand that didn't just, that's not an organic thing. That's just I, I, I love hearing Morgoth talk about this because he's never very happy when he talks no, he's about not. it. But you have to understand that was decided in some office somewhere where they were thinking like, okay, what's, what's a song that's going to, it's got a kind of nostalgic sound it's got the right sort of message it's an oasis song you know it's it's northern hence you know, it, it, it was it was some office worker who got yeah. his week's pay sorted just for yeah. suggesting uh don't look back in anger that'll yeah. bring everyone yeah, the, together the, the new breaking Genius. out of the guitar for wonder Wall might be a tad too egregious mm. option too mm -hmm. yeah absolutely disgusting but, but the fact that, the, that those contingencies even need to be planned for didn't used to be like this. Was the fact that the government know that this is a possibility yeah. and instead of actually preventing the possibility because we know that the intelligence service that was prevent, mm. that was initially set up to prevent Islamic terror attacks is now being more orientated towards far right white supremacist activities. These organizations are actively positioned against the native populations mm -hmm. and against solving the problems that are so, so obvious to anybody who is paying any slight attention. Yeah. And uh, the AFD are paying attention, know these problems exist, and say, well, if you vote for us, we'll solve these problems. We'll do our best to, to, to try and prevent mass migration, do, the, do our best to try and prevent your demographic replacement, do our best to prevent all of the crimes that happen as a result of the migration and demographic replacement. For this, they get labeled far right, uh, but as well, they get a lot of votes. A lot of support is going their way. As I mentioned, they are now Germany's second strongest party. And so in the name of democracy, uh, Germany is currently deciding whether they should ban them or not. And this, this is just how demo democracy works, folks, is that uh, you exist within the playground. And if you don't want to be in the playground, well, then you're not one of the cool kids and you're going to get grounded. You're going to get put in detention and preferably you'll lose your livelihood, lose, you, lose your job and eventually be exiled like some kind of thought terrorist where you can die off in some far-flung country if we don't just put you in prison. This is a point that's often made on Timcast, is that when the Democrats talk about our democracy, they are literally delineating us, as in their club, and you. You are excluded from the democracy. You're an existential threat to it. And so you must be ostracized and cracked down on, even, even to the level of parents complaining at school boards about, about sexual perversion. In, in their materials. And it's because in the American context, you've got the emergence of the Constitutional Republic, the original thing, and this kind of barnacle ideology of the multicultural democracy being grafted onto it that is metastasizing and parasitic, um, parasitic and taking over the original organism. And what we're seeing here is the post-war paradigm that is pathologically terrified of Nazism re-emerging from the German context, that it uses that label wrongly to apply to the AFD who are 
just sort of centrist, really, and don't want their country flooded with migrants, to then ostracize them from, again, the quote-unquote, our democracy. It's just saying, it's our club and you aren't allowed in. Yeah, I think people are noticing this more and more. Like you say, it's our club and you're not allowed in. People were sold the idea of democracy in this 19th century fashion of, well, it's just a system wherein the people get to have a say in who governs them and they get represented because you're paying tax, so you might as well be represented in parliament. And therefore, from that point, you have some kind of even minor say. You get to have your minor say. No, it's not a system because that sounds far too neutral. That sounds like it might actually give people what they want because if we had... Even if we had some uh, form of direct democracy, which is not something that I'm in support of, we would get better results than what we get right now. Polls have shown consistently for decades at this point that the average Brit does not want mass migration and barely wants any migration into the country. This is Matthew Goodwin's work that I've spoken to him about on the website. Uh, what, what, show, what happens is that democracy as a term is more a system of thought that is uh, championed by our political leaders wherein it, it has very specific guidelines for what you're supposed to do. It's governance in support of uh, unsituated international finance. Uh, it is in support of mass migration. It is in support of the completely disconnected, universal, liberal idea of the universal man, wherein anybody in any nation is interchangeable economic units that can be shuffled around like you do numbers on a spreadsheet. That's what democracy is. It is completely hostile to anything that can be considered perennial, parochial and native to European peoples, because it's more than happy to, you know, support the identity of foreign nations and foreign peoples who come over here, but nothing uh, would do nothing of the sort for any of us, because that would be fascism. Well, on that as well, do you notice that when the types you're talking about say, they talk about our democracy, what they, they're just using that as a, as a synonym for country. Like they could say this is extremely dangerous to our country, but instead they use the word democracy. Which I think, I don't know, I just think well, that's it's really far weird. more international, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's, it's not, not rooting that. it anywhere. You well, exactly. don't want to root it anywhere. Because I've, I've heard even people on our side of things, I mean, you know, sort of centre-right types, um, they refer to Britain as our democracy. And I say, like, why, why aren't you calling it our country? And it's because there's, you know, there's, it's, you know, it's one of Carl's thick concepts, isn't it? A country. Whereas a democracy is a very thin idea. Well, it's also being wedded to the institutional structures which enrich and empower them mm. specifically. Yeah. Because you could actually clear out the institutional structure, reform it or reduce it or just destroy it outright, and the country would still be going. But that institutional structure is, is a is a product of that internationalist managerial class, the anywhere men who could be transplor- transported out of time, place, and culture, put down anywhere, like a Rishi Sunak, who mm. was working at international finance before he was parachuted into a safe seat and rose up the ranks, failed upwards to become prime minister. Those people, that structure can be transplanted anywhere to create a homogenous world state. Mm. Whereas we're saying, well, no, we're particular to our country, time, and place. And actually, we don't want the expats of the third world flooded in to fundamentally transform that into a regionally managed constituency of that global government. It just comes down to this argument between, you know, what makes the place? Is it the people or is it the ideas? Yes. And, there's, and this debate is ongoing in the distant right, certainly. Um, and I think there's a certain fear to acknowledge the fact that it can only be people that well, make the place what it is. The ideas are a product of the people time. Exactly. That's it. Yeah, the not, ideas are and, downstream from the people. Yeah, and, and so if you replace the people, the ideas just disappear. Yeah, and the liberal milieu presupposes that, that the truths are self-evident that we are universal men, but it's like, no, those, those are just conceit from yeah. you. And it's being, that conceit is being manipulated to keep the populace in a state of learned dependency while the oligarchs laugh because it's their democracy. Mm. And that's the interesting thing about universalism is it is itself a Western particularism. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it, it's not a neutral value. Neutrality yeah. is not a neutral value. Yeah. As the banks with, with, with uh, Farage have shown us. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, absolutely. Basically, to sum all of that up, um, it d- democracy is the ideology of globalism. Basically, there. But let's read on with this article and see what it says. There is quite a bit of information to go through here, so I'll try and be quick with this. So Germany is currently debating to ban whether to ban the far right alternative for Germany, as the party surges to 21% in the polls amid warnings from intelligence officials that its members are becoming increasingly extreme. So I think last year, the intelligence agencies in Germany decided that they were going to focus a lot of attention on spying on AFD members. Similar, once again, to how Prevent over here is spying on native Brits, who they deem to be white supremacists, and the FBI in America is doing very similar things with its own native population who say, well, we don't want gender studies in schools, for instance. They're now far-right extremists as well. These terms are all incredibly gray and malleable so that they can just be attached to anyone, anytime, place to designate them as an enemy of the state. Frank Walter Steinmeier, the German president, warned in a speech to the country's domestic agency that we all have it in our hands to put those who despise our democracy in their place. That's an explicit threat. Mask yes. off, yeah. There you go. His speech at the castle where the German post-war constitution was created has widely been seen as support for a ban after Thomas Haldewang, the domestic spy chief, warned about growing right-wing extremist influence in the party. So the spies met in a castle and said, we're going to ban the it Germans. Is rather, yeah. It is all rather James Bond. It's Indiana just Indiana Jones. Jones. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mr. Haldewang said, we see a considerate, should I, we see a considerable number of protagonists in this party that spread hate against all types of minorities here in Germany. Yeah. It comes amid warnings of the increasing influence of Bjorn Hock, the leader of the AFD in the eastern state of Thuringia. Mr. Hock, a former history teacher, is known for his Hitler-esque language. <gasps> is that a quote from this article? That is a quote from this article. He drinks water. Do you know who else drank water? Hitler. He I speaks hit- German. Do you know who else spoke German? Hitler. Wait, this is in the Telegraph, yeah? This is in the Telegraph. That's not paraphrased from someone else. No, no, I can give you an example of what... So I'll just finish off this paragraph. So with his allies sweeping the board for European lists at the party's conference in Magdeburg in August. So the... If I... uh, Yeah, uh, where where is it here? Haldenwang. So Mr. Hock, a former history teacher known for his Hitler-esque language. If you follow this link in um, (laughs) in the Telegraph article, it takes you to another article. And I found the quote from that article that I've put in my notes here, so I'll read it for you. So the Saxony state branch of the party used a photo of a downwards-facing rainbow triangle in a post on Twitter calling for an end to what it described as language abuse in the region's universities. This symbol is reminiscent of the pink triangle that the Nazis forced gay men to wear when they were sent to concentration camps. In recent years, LGBT groups have reappropriated the triangle symbol as part of their own campaigning. Wait, so, so... So this is this is Hitler-esque language. I don't know where the language came in to this. And they've literally said, ah, triangles. Do you know who else used triangles? The Nazis. Yeah, not even that. He's using the symbol because then the gay lobby groups re-co-opted and reused the symbol. So the symbols become synonymous with the gay lobby groups, not the Nazis. What aren't you understanding here? <laughs> I'm sorry. I suppose my IQ is about I, room temperature. Are you are you insinuating some negative traits to our democracy? This yes. is very subversive behavior, comrade. Um, but let's go back to this article now. So in a rare move, the respected Des Spiegel news magazine... What's with the editorializing in this? I know. It's, it's, very, of Telegraph. it's very strange. They weighed into the debate with a leader titled, Ban the Enemies of the Constitution. Well, that couldn't be any more blatant if they tried. 
It warned that the AFD had become more and more radicalized. It's time to defend democracy with better weapons. This is, once again, sounding more and more extreme language coming from the people who are supposedly defending peace, justice, and the German way? Okay. All right. Uh, the co-leader of Olaf Scholz's ruling Social Democrats also said a ban should be considered if the AFD is categorized as a group of proven right-wing extremists by the Federal Office for the Protection of the Constitution. So, oh, if the experts say it. Yeah. So, yes. The leading branch of government says that if a separate branch of government, which presumably they're in charge with, or at least work closely with, say that the main threat to their own party are a bunch of terrorists, then we've got no choice but to decide that they're a bunch of terrorists and we've got to ban them. But especially if they increase their budget and are no threat to the permanently enshrined democratic, uh, anti-democratic uh, bureaucracy that is, that is gatekeeping the democracy. It's the same way that the FBI were all too happy to persecute Trump because Trump wanted to rescind the size of the intelligence state. And this is, all, <laughs> this is just a, a hilarious farce as far as I'm concerned. But just the, the language again here that's being used about radicalization and extreme and so on, like this is all, for one thing, very emotive language. Oh, but it's yeah. all relative language as well. Because I think radical and extreme are two different things. Because radical to me just means you're just outside the mainstream paradigm. It's not a bad thing in and of itself to be radical. Um, you know, this is where the whole sort of sensible centrist idea comes from. Is it's, it's in this country, for example, radical to oppose immigration in many ways. Although, even though most people uh, agree with that position, but it's 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 in opposition to the ruling class to hold. Well, that's because our ruling class are the most radically left wing. Well, I would say the ruling, ruling class, class that we've ever had. But this is the distinction. I think the ruling class are extreme. Therefore, if you oppose them, then you are radical. Yes. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you are yourself extreme. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Anyway. I'll carry on with this. There's just a few more examples. So we've got the Germany, the German Institute for Human Rights, a non-governmental organization. Oh, the NGOs. We love our NGOs. Completely apolitical organizations. Yeah, every single one of them, they're just neutral charities. They're not full of subversives who hate Europe. They declared last week that the AFD have reached a degree of dangerousness. This is official expert language, dangerousness, that they can be banned according to the Constitution. They warned in an analysis that the party is actively and methodically trying to implement its racist and right-wing extremist goals and shifting the limits of what can be said so that people can get used to their ethno-nationalist positions. Great. Where can I sign up? Disavow. <laughs> uh, only, only joking, of course. They are normal people. As we mentioned, they are at most centre-right. Can I, can I just expose a quick example of why the NGO bureaucracy is not political? Yeah, go ahead. Back when I was in the environmental sector, we were applying for charity status and we got repeatedly harangued because we'd written articles critical of Extinction Rebellion before as a political group, but they had already accepted and upheld the Marxist Library's petition to be a licensed charity. See, I'm reliably told that Extinction Rebellion and Just a Porn and so on, they're like the rebels, right? No, they're, 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 like they're the, against the establishment. They're, they're manufacturing they? consent on behalf of the establishment yeah. because they, they do what the UN already wants them to do just faster. I don't think. I think they're the punk rock cool kids and I want to be a part Oh, you can tell by the hair dye, definitely. Of course, yeah. yeah, yeah. But um, if we're talking about extremism, let's look at what actually happens to the AFD. I've already told you about the interview that we had with their youth leader who got stabbed for trying to attend a public film festival that he was invited to. Well, most recently, just the other day, the Bavaria chief of the AFD was beaten up in what he described as an organized migrant attack. So this is what he looks like normally. They don't have any actual pictures, but they do have a video embedded of a recent interview that he did. Blindly. Jesus. This is what they did to him. So I'll just read through a little bit of this article. So uh, he's a candidate for state legislator. 
uh, Sleacher. Uh, he said that it was a politically motivated attack by migrants. Andreas Jerker was returning home with a party colleague on Sunday when he was approached by a group of foreign males who asked him if he was the AFD candidate featured on nearby posters. Before he could answer, Jerker was punched and kicked to the ground with shouts of effing Nazi. His party colleague was also assaulted in a post-attack statement. He confirmed that the perpetrators of the attack were indeed of foreign origin. In his own words, I don't mean Spaniards or Italians. <laughs> Very Englishmen, presumably. Yeah, yeah, obviously it yeah. must have been French. Uh, acts of violence by left-wing anti-fascist groups are a regular occurrence for the AFD representatives, as is state-backed harassment from domestic intelligence services, the BFV, who formally placed the party under surveillance last year. So obviously... Under any other circumstances, if he was, say, a left-wing politician, this could sound like some kind of Jussie Smollett incident. But this is a regular occurrence for them. We have multiple accounts of very similar things happening. We've had interviews from a gentleman from the AFD spoken to Callum about similar things happening to him. So there is no real reason to deny that anything like this would happen when foreigners come over to European countries and they know that the parties in charge are going to give them overwhelming benefits and B, they are on the side of power. They know that they can get away with this. Is this being looked into by the police? The article doesn't show. But given the track record of the police with the other attacks that we've been discussing here, I doubt anything will come of this. Because this is state-approved violence. This is state-backed violence. Anti-fascist groups in Europe and across the West are allowed free reign to do whatever they want as long as the people that they are targeting are going against the political establishment, even only slightly. Um, American politicians as well, like Jerry Nadler, will deny their existence and call them a myth as they're currently burning down churches and businesses. It's just an idea, bro. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. What is it? What is it that the AFD are, are opposing? Because, you know, we say all of this, but Germany might be a perfect utopia of multiculturalism where people come over and they're able to integrate immediately. They get their passport and the second they get that passport, it magically, as soon as it comes into contact with their skin, they're German. Mm. Just as German as the rest of them. When they get their passport, their entire heritage, German. They hold all a of, Stein and a Bratwurst. All of their history before that erased. They are now perfectly German. They have no cultural or, uh, or ethnic baggage that comes with their identity. Well, there was an actually quite useful unheard article that I found. Germany cannot keep ignoring AFD voter concerns. I'm going to ignore the editorializing in here because she is, of course, also saying that they are a far-right Nazi party because they oppose the problems that she clearly outlines in here. So that's always interesting how that works. But I'll just read some of the information she gives. So the town of Furstenwald was embroiled in a bitter battle to stop a school sports hall from being turned into an accommodation for migrants, an issue that united supporters of almost all of the political parties, but the AFD are the only major political party that say that they want to sort these problems out nationwide. Um, a commuter town, uh, so yeah, Furstenwald is a commuter town by the River Spree with a handful of shops, cobbled streets, and a small cathedral. One of the topics in the beer garden revolved around a brutal stabbing that had taken place in the town a few days earlier. A 26-year-old man from Styria had stabbed another man several times before fleeing the scene. Many such cases. After hours of searching, police tactical units eventually apprehended him. The fact that he is currently detained in a psychiatric hospital rather than custody has led to further speculation as to whether the police are treating his case seriously enough. For instance, the medieval village of Schomburg as well, north of Berlin, has 250 inhabitants and is supposed to find housing for 80 refugees. So that's what? A third. Jesus. A third of the population is going to be imported into a tiny medieval community. The local government is looking to lease a plot of land from the parish right in the village centre to build a container settlement. 
Residents told the local press that it's too much for the village. We don't have anything here. No infrastructure, nothing. They didn't even consult us. So if you believe in democracy as a system, you would listen to the people. But democracy as a belief system says, no, you have to accept this because your democratically elected leaders say so. And let's not forget this. Yes. Mm -hmm. The 2015 to 2016 New Year's Eve sexual assaults in Germany. And this was something that was just horrible. 1,200 women had been sexually assaulted on the New Year's night entirely by migrants. Are we expected to care about this? No. We're expected to forget about this. AFD seem to be the only party in Germany who actually care about this, who have any sort of political hopes and, and support behind them. So maybe they can do something about it. Maybe they can't. Either way, if they can do something about it, the German establishment might just ban them. So may all of our politicians burn, metaphorically. In Minecraft. Right then. <clears throat> cheery. Very cheery. So, you might prove anything by figures. Um, so said Thomas Carlyle in his 19 or 1839 essay uh, on statistics in his book, Chartism. Um, and like so much of Carlyle's writing, um, this essay... Fiery and sendry? Yeah, but it's become only more relevant as uh, time has passed and our civilization has aged. It's been, you know, 138 years and... Uh, the criticisms that he levels in this essay um, are only more true now than they were then. So Carlyle's point is summed up in the following quotation. So the condition of the working man in this country, what it is and has been, whether it is improving or retrograding, is a question to which, from st statistics hitherto, no solution can be got. Hitherto, after many tables and statements, one is still left mainly to what he can ascertain by his own eyes, looking at the concrete phenomenon for himself. So in other words, statistics or abstractions more generally, they can't, give us, um, they can't give us a solution. They can't tell us what we ought to do. And moreover, they don't actually paint a truly comprehensive picture of the world as it is. Um, it doesn't get at the essence of the thing, is what Carlyle says. So in the case of the working man, Carlyle, Carlyle contends that while statistics may show his condition to be improving, um, if you go out and walk in the streets, you'll see the actual reality as it was on the ground with your own eyes. So this leads us nicely into the exchange um, that inspired this segment. So a certain... Acadian king here, um, and a chap who goes by monitoring bias, um, have been going back and forth on this topic. Um, and I think that this is an important issue uh, for us to discuss because, um, I don't know, this is a, it's a conversation that's ongoing within the right, and it's something that we need to actually so have an answer to. So monitoring bias is somebody mm. that I don't follow, but I've seen a number of his posts, and he can be very, very hit and miss. I've yes. seen him post some information and data mm -hmm. that was very interesting and very revealing. And I've seen him in this exchange where he was um, not very good, if I'm perfectly honest. I never yeah. thought I would see anybody unironically talking about the, um, the progressive bent of history. Yeah. Well, part of the reason I think is, and this is something that I think you're going to get to, is what heuristic do we have for what constitutes a good life? Is it a top-down imposition, the managing of all resources, the turning of the world into standard reserve that you can take out of its environment, put on a shelf, take back off and put elsewhere? Or is it being embedded time, place and accepting our constraints and living within them? This is something that we were talking about in a contemplations that me, Josh and Rory did in environmentalism. And we said that even the rights approach to the environment, which is, okay, all we need to do is develop technologies to reduce pollution and then we can have abundant energy and and it, that still has the conceit that the making space for nature approach, which will alienate us from living in a time, place, and mm -hmm. tradition, 
just because it, it itemizes and manages everything rather than living presently within it. And that seems to be the perspective here is, okay, if we live by numbers, then we're distant from the actual products of what we produce by our interventions. Whereas if we, if we live embedded and on the ground and talk about how we feel about living presently in the thing, then we're much more connected to what we end up doing. Yeah. Well, Michael Oakeshott is another thinker alongside Carlisle who's going to sort of reign over this conversation. Because um, again, I'd come across this monitoring bias guy before. Don't follow him. Um, but he does really come across as one of Oakeshott's rationalists, you know, an FIFing love science type character. <laughs> <clears throat> Burke's men of letters. Yeah. Well, not, not even that because- Potential see, real life soy jet. Yeah, yeah. The interesting thing, because Carlyle actually disagrees with Burke about men of letters. He says that men of letters are actually uh, an important and essential component of um, of a, a movement. If you well, a man of letter doesn't need to be a rationalist. No, no, that's Carlyle right. himself and Burke would both be considered men of letters. Yeah, absolutely. So I think just dismissing them outright. But they can be silly. when they're in yeah. the revolutionary also, tradition. Once again, yes. dismissing all forms of rationalism, dismissing all forms of uh, data retrieval and such mm. is also very silly because you can use these things to get a good understanding of the world around you. You can't just... Yeah. But the problem is when you use only statistics and only data mm. to understand the world without going out and seeing the actual conditions that people live yeah, when, when in. You're, exactly. When you're commanded yeah. to ignore the patterns that you personally notice because there's a number in front of you. Like, for, mm. like for instance, a recent statistic that I saw when Callum was covering it on the podcast was that uh, I believe, don't worry guys, house prices have finally gone down for the first time in years right. by 0.1%. We're saved. Fantastic. Yeah. So on a, if I plotted that on a graph and you're looking at it from a buyer's perspective, this mm. is a positive trend. This is a new positive trend. If you go out into the world and see whether people are actually able to buy houses or not. Mm -hmm. And to be fair, you can gather information on this as well. It still doesn't look that great. No, it doesn't. And on, and on the topic of the actual conditions that people are living in, we're going to go through this exchange just briefly because it's uh, the, the two positions being represented are... I think, again, that's really important to discuss. So Carl says, rich men north of Richmond hits all the right beats about the current state of the modern world. Everything is indeed in decline. Our money is worth less and everyone has less of it, even while they're working harder than ever. The rich people in charge think that normal folk don't understand that the rich are purposefully ruining their country, that people are completely aware. They just don't know what to do about it. And it's making them feel the way the tone of the song conveys. The people in charge are obsessed with data because they do want total control. They want to use their mastery of technology to leave nothing outside of their perception. Who doesn't have an old soul that misses the old world where your thoughts were your own? They can see that lazy moochers and victim interest groups are raised above the concerns of the regular folk and that there is an injustice contained in such a state of affairs. What else is there to do but drown your sorrows to forget your woes? The rich men north of Richmond just expect them to carry this burden and accept their place at the bottom of at the bottom as the world around them grows worse and any light that might make the future look bright grows dim. It's no wonder such a soulful song would be a viral sensation in times like this. Things are bleak and it's evident who is behind it and that they aren't going to get any better anytime soon. That's so, quite a nice summation yes, of it. And yeah. Before we go into any other details, I just want mm. to uh, uh, clear something up because I don't think we've spoken about this song mm. on the account, on, on the website. I was going to ask you guys podcast. what you thought of it. Yeah. Um, and I, I just wanted to say, I understand that it's a little bit polarizing for people. Obviously, it's become somewhat of a viral sensation. Mm. Hey, there's Auron. Nice to see him there. And good he, on Calvin. He enjoys yep. it. Calvin enjoys it as well. That's really good to see the support. Some people don't like this style of music, this kind of very simple bluegrass country style. Mm. I really like the song. I think there is something to be said for a simple four-chord song with a soulful lyric yeah. and a catchy melody. 
over the top of it. And I know some people also don't like the country twang that he affects in his voice. I would imagine, given that this appears to be Appalachia, mm. where he's performing from, this might just be his how accent he speaks, yeah, and how well, he speaks. There's a there's a wonderful authenticity to it that I appreciate, and it's nice to hear a song in this style, which is supposed to be conveying the authentic emotions of the average man that actually is conveying the emotions of the average man because there's this thing called bro country or mainstream country which is just shiny production talking about I'm going to drink my beers I'm going to drive my truck it's basically like Yellowstone conservatism yeah oh god yeah that's not what it should be yeah but back to Schmidt like you know, the, the right just needs to understand friend enemy we gain nothing for putting this guy down no he's saying things that we all agree with and it's a popular song. People are liking it. It's resonating. It's just take the win. He's right? reading Bible verses at the opening of his performance. Exactly. Good man. Exactly. So, on to the exchange then. So, uh, this monitoring bias chap replies. Oh, hell. oh, oh. God. Just press back. Uh, top. Oh, yeah. Sorry, guys. Right. Never trust the northerner with tech. Anyway, sorry. Hey. So, he fires back with, everything is indeed in decline. Lamal, in the US, wages are now rising faster than inflation, and the unemployment rate is 3.5. Inflation Bro. is a relative rate of change metric, so it's slightly less worse than it was progressing last year, but it's still worse. This is, like, this is, there is a reason why Bill Gates has on his shelf How to Lie with Statistics as one of his favorite books. Yep. Because the elite manipulate numbers to lie to you, and yeah. you've fallen for it, you midwit. This, this is the kind of guy who would go, but look at the GDP, though, and ignore that uh, GDP exactly. also takes in government spending, which isn't any marker of productivity. But how does this get to that? We'll get to that. As the Rome falls behind yeah. you. But the government threw $3 trillion into the ocean, and that went on their expense account. So GDP went up this yeah. year, guys. But it's just, I mean, again, you know, Carl... You know, every word of symphony, as far as I'm concerned, with what he said. And then this guy just fires back with, <laughs> aren't you aware that the unemployment rate is 3.5? But look at this graph. And yeah. graphs can be great and graphs can be useful. All right, Nickelback. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, once again, it would be hypocritical of us to say otherwise, because oftentimes we use data and statistics when we're looking at figures surrounding, um, s- surrounding migration. But you always have to be careful when you look into... Who's collecting these statistics mm-hmm. and how are they using the statistics? Are they leaving figures out? Like yep. we always talk about the employment rate in the UK is said to be at record lows mm-hmm. because we've got just so many people employed and so many jobs that need to be filled. That's why we need to bring in all of these migrants where we don't realize, or at least most people don't realize that the employment figures leave out economic inactivity mm-hmm. of yep. people who are in university, people who are taking early retirements, people who are on benefits and other such things. So there are a lot of people who aren't in work in the UK who could be working but aren't factored in so that the government can manufacture consent for migration. So it's really important if you're going to use statistics to look properly into these statistics. Absolutely. So Carl comes back with, again, representing the Carlisle position. Just look around you, man. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> But so, Manchester's an incredibly rich city. Who cares if there's crack addicts yeah. smoking crack in yeah. the middle of the street? So this monitoring bias chap comes back with, I prefer the actual data to your look around you man approach to economic analysis. So again, it's just the same argument. Okay, so what, what this graph that he's showing shows us is that earnings took a massive dip and inflation did this massively over. But now because this is happening, we're supposed to be happy. So what this is showing to me is that for this entire period here, we had a period of insane inflation where it will probably take years, years and years of this shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and wages going up and up and up for us to even catch up to what the wage to inflation rates would have been yeah. previous Do to the COVID period. Do you want to be even more upset? 
the the reason that they're shrinking is because they keep taking goods out of the basket that allows them to oh, calculate the, the average. Thing, so I believe in America they actually took house prices out of out of the basket. Right. <laughs> and over in the UK, when I think it was May, when they said, "Oh, inflation's fallen like by about three percent in in this time last year," it's because they put the energy price cap guarantee in. So we're paying to keep the energy prices at the rate that they are in tax. We're still paying for it, but just compared to this time last year when they were really high and rising. It's a lot less. So they're just manipulating the stuff. Yeah. So, so, you might prove anything by figures. But just again. to put it in more concrete terms, say say you like a Twix. I do, do they get Twixes in America? I have no idea. Twix is a lovely chocolate bar. They're very nice. Yeah, I enjoy agreed. a Twix every now and again if I'm feeling cheeky. And, <laughs> and um, say, say you've got a Twix and you want to buy a Twix and a Twix has gone up maybe uh, 50% in price. Um, so that's all, you know, that's, that's gone up 50% in price over the past few years, and your wages have stagnated. But now your wages have gone up 0.05% while the Twix is still, on average, inflating. Mm. That's, I'm still spending far more per yeah. Twix than I was before and earning only a little bit more. And even then, my wages are worth less than they were a few but years ago. The line's ago going up. But according to this chart, that means that that's a good thing, which yeah. means that years from now, my wages might catch up to where a Twix would cost in real terms the same as it did a few years ago. Uh -huh. But in that time, inflation is still happening. Indeed. So, uh, just uh, let's see. There we are. So, Carl says that he's um, uh, speaking about observable reality and that monitoring bias is speaking about abstractions. Who cares what the unemployment rate is uh, if people are struggling to get by when they have a job? Who cares about the hourly earnings? Who cares what the hourly earnings are if they can hardly afford rent? The world is decaying around us. There is no refuge to be found in data. We can see the decrepit nature of the buildings, the disgusting nature of the streets, the moral failings of the people, and the lies of the elite. The West is falling apart. This is something important that we were discussing off air. Mm. And this is what is going to be remembered as well. Yes. Because during the industrial age, this is, this is always the point that, that people talk about, oh, the, the bar of progress has gone since the industrial age of where people were subsisting on less than a dollar a day and now 80% of that poverty has been eliminated. Okay, but what is the memory of the industrial age? It is the narratives that came out of it. It's the narratives that, frankly, Marx and Engels put in conditions of the working class in England and in capital, where uh, and, and even in, in Orwell's Road to Wigan Pier, where the woman is sticking a stick up a foul drain pipe or her mother is sedating her baby as it's in the factory with her with opiates or even in uh, Blake's London where the, the smogs and chimney sweeps uh, chimney stacks are just a, a oppressive and they're filling the sky with miasma and so that's what is the driving force for change this is why Oliver, Oliver Twist uh, Charles Dickens novels and Bleak House as well. Their depictions of the workhouses and the chancery courts led to poor law reform and uh, the consolidation of the courts into a more streamlined system that allowed people to get redress rather than having their, their inheritances burned up while it's being contested. So these statistics, these graphs, these figures, yes, they might be useful pol policy analysts in the moment, but it's actually the emotive power of how people feel in a time and mm. place that is the real driver of substantial change. And this is exactly the point that Carlyle makes in this essay, Statistics. He says that, you know, this mere, this, you know, the reign of quantity idea, looking at mere quantity numbers, things that can be expressed in statistics, is it almost doesn't matter in a way because it it doesn't get at the quality of the thing, it doesn't get at the quality of the city, for example, where you know there is just like you know the buildings are decrepit and the people are they look sullen and heavy and and as if they have a great burden on them. Um, you can't express that in numbers, you know, the quantitative language of science. Well, even if you wanted to equate it into numbers. I think this uh, Jesse person who commented underneath it uh, brings up a good point. This is a great is, point. Yeah. Is this one of those inflation charts where they exclude unimportant things like houses, cars, and food? 
I've never made so much money and been able to afford so little. I could not even buy the house I live in if I had to purchase it at its current value. Many such cases, my parents and other people her, uh, their age mm. and people like them bought their houses for, you know, it would have been new builds back in the late 1990s. So this yeah. would have been maybe 80, 90,000 pounds. Mm -hmm. And their next door neighbors are now looking to sell their house, which would have cost them about that much for about 450,000 pounds. Yeah. yeah. Ridiculous. Oh, I mean, the house hasn't changed. Mm. It's still the same structure it was. It's a bit different on the inside because they yeah. decorated it. It's still the same size garden. The neighborhood's pretty much the same. Mm -hmm. There's a bit less countryside next to it because we've built more housing estates since then. But the prices more than doubled. I'm well, told some, double. something Triple. happened. Something happened in the late 90s? Some, something might have happened. Tom Holt will get around to it one day, I'm okay. sure. So, uh, yeah, on to the next response then. So, never respond to an empirical claim made by a trad account with population-level data because data are abstractions and definitely not observable reality. Sorry, is he calling Carl a trad account? Yeah. It, no. Carl <laughs> a trad account. He's got um, some trad-ish tendencies. He's just postmodern yeah. traditionalist. Yeah. He's not a trad account. That's just, no. It's, I still it's, don't know what half of these bloody terms mean nowadays. Yeah. So it's far better to rely upon one's lived experience or culture war groupthink or the tweeted personal anecdotes being algorithmically fed to you, or better yet, on Vibe, which are, of course, as any social scientist will tell you, the leading indicators of observable reality. Well, I mean, if you get a feel for the atmosphere of a place, yeah. that's... That's all of your senses taking in the yes. observable reality at once. Yes. We spoke about Schmidt in the first segment. This is it. This is putting things beyond political reproach. This is just saying this is the trajectory of progress. This is the trajectory of travel. Mm -hmm. And Carl is saying what you're doing by not observing the on-the-ground reality and just falling back on numbers is you're blind to the existential threats that are emerging from the midst, which, I mean, Schmidt phrased it as the Antichrist. Carl saying, this is going to disintegrate the social texture and therefore the prosperity on which it rests of your civilization while you look at your spreadsheet and try and convince yourself that things are still going okay. You cannot put things in a category that are beyond debate or criticism because then you are blind to the errors that will undo everything you want. Well, this is just the classic Tony Blair thing of, well, globalization is inevitable. Yeah, uh, it's, what's it's, that as, quote? it's like the change of the seasons. Yeah, that's know, the one. Yeah. yeah, and uh, no, it's not. It was a choice. It was a specific political choice made by his administration um, that we are living the consequences of. I mean, there was also a, just a, a logical follow up of what uh, Thatcher had done to well, of course. the economy as well and, and technological to, development, uh, financial, uh, international yeah. investment. Yeah. So uh, he finishes You see, data won't give you the kind of insight into civilizational decline that a good, firm set of beliefs can provide. These people are religionists filled with a deep sense of doom. The unmistakable arc of human progress is totally lost. And that was oh. the most disappointing thing that I saw the unmistakable arc of human progress. Okay. Uh -huh. uh, well, uh, well, I mean, if we're going by pure numbers, I suppose increase in crime rates, that's progress of a sort. Increase in rape, that's a progress yeah. of a sort. I suppose. So if you're going purely by number go up equal good thing, yeah, there are plenty of things happening yeah. in Western civilization right now that are good. Also, the idea of calling other people religionists. I'm sorry to break this to you. This is something that a lot of scientists do recognize and need to recognize, which is that there is a good deal of faith that goes into accepting the conclusions of any science of course, yeah. in the first place. Because what you are doing, you're taking the faith uh, claim that the scientist who collected all of this data is one taken in the data on good faith and two, presenting you the data in good faith. 
and not added his own personal biases to it. So there's a great deal of faith that goes into this. We'll also see the religion of science that Sam Harris has fallen under the spell of. But but you reminded me of a great example before I stopped derailing your segment, mate, which is (laughs) Stephen Pinker's Better Angels of Our Nature. It's the perfect exercise in manipulating data. It's going to come up later. Oh, is it? Brilliant. Okay. Do you you reach the same conclusion where essentially... he decides to say, well, a reduction in violence shows moral progress. And mm-hmm. It's like, right. So if you look at the, the fascist states of, and, and, and of, of 1930s Germany, does, does that mean they're better because they got rid of more crime, mate? Because that might not be the conclusion to reach an enlightenment <laughs> on a now. Certain, no. On a certain metric. Yeah, so, so we, 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 might, live we might want to value other metrics mm-hmm. in that case, I think. Indeed. Also, he was cherry-picking a lot of his data points. Yeah, he also he also suggested the novel led to uh, a leap in moral improvement, and that's why we also... He also completely crime. ignores the development of medical technology, which means that vi- uh, violent attacks are now, on average, less fatal than they were back in the data back in the times where he's taking a lot of his medieval data from. Yeah, it's also- if you got stabbed in the 1200s, you had a hell of a lot less likely chance of surviving than if you get stabbed now. And also the, the rates of data collection and storage and the literacy rates that criminals would have versus the regular population. So maybe they wouldn't have been able to read Jane Austen and Charles Dickens, which filled them all with warm and fuzzy inside sentiments to stop them just mindlessly stabbing people, I suppose. Also, Must Stephen be. Pinker danced in a really cringe way when, jo- when Donald Trump lost the 2020 election. Oh, but we could... Yeah, we that. could start. Jesus. We could dunk on Stephen Pinker for hours. Yes. But, uh, thank you at least for the blank slate. That was a good. Point. Hey. Anyway, so we'll move on. But um, you've raised some, both of you, some very important points there. So first of all, I want to point you towards this article that Carl wrote because ba- it basically sums up his point, which is that the decline you can feel it when you walk through the streets. You can't prove you can't prove a spiritual malaise with statistics, but it's tangible. But, yeah, but when you go to Swindon Town Centre and you breathe, breathe in, you look around and you just think, wow. Yeah. We used to be a good country. I smell pigeon. Yeah. Wow, is that surrounded by, yeah. surrounded by Moroccans? Yeah. Great. But again, like the point of like sensory, um, you know, getting a sense of the thing is really important because you know you walk through the streets of anywhere, you can smell the weed, you can smell the sewage, you can see the boarded up shops and so on. Yeah. If you go to a lovely little isolated town in the countryside and breathe it in, you can smell the fresh air. Yeah. And how open and natural everything is. For now. Yeah. But you took safe for now, please. I'm trying to be positive. Yes, indeed. But you talked about faith there and about how um, in order even the the scientism position is built on faith. Um, and a discussion that I want us to have here briefly is about basically the argument that all political beliefs and all beliefs and behavior in general is human behavior, human beliefs, it's just fundamentally irrational. But we have this deep need to rationalize it um, after the fact. And the political positions are essentially built on myths, not facts. And that most people, when you present them with so-called facts or statistics and so on, they will just dismiss them because of where they came from, who collected them, um, and just look for data that supports their own position. Well, this is almost Haidt's idea of that That's most, exactly right. most yeah. things are post-rationalizations. You can, you can actually invert Carol Hanisch's feminist tract that says the person is political. Well, no, actually, most politics are downstream of personality. Yes. And most people are just looking to the data and whatever misrepresented statistic they can find because they're only half literate and aren't reading meta-analyses anyway to try and buttress their pre-existing point. They're yeah. just trying to beat you over the head into a conclusion that they hope you are going to be gaslit into thinking is inevitable. Yeah. I mean, I, I tend to think that statistics in the final analysis, the function of statistics in politics is essentially, they're just essentially a weapon that you use to attack another person's belief system. Because, I don't know, 
you can make an appeal to truth and an appeal to reality when you're trying to take somebody else down. But your beliefs fundamentally, I think, are built on again what Pareto would call sentiments. You know, these things that you don't have these rational control. Things that normal and sensible people believe. Yeah. That's, that's generally how instincts. you view your own yeah. beliefs. Yeah, just instincts. It's and the kind of thing we've been stripped from from the education system that, that C.S. Lewis criticized the Green Book for at the start of The Abolition of Man, of where if they can get you to believe that everything you feel about the natural world, that the natural world actually conjures up from within you as a shared human experience, is just your artificial projection on the natural world, mm. then they can substitute that with the sentiment that they would prefer you to have. Yes. They can steward you towards their preferred utopia. Yeah. Again, it's just gaslighting. That's yeah. all it is. Exactly right. And on gaslighting, I think you know what Carlisle addressed in Chartism and in this essay Statistics is what he called the condition of England question. This was a big debate that was happening at the time about the effect of the Industrial Revolution on the working class of England um, and how, again, this, all the statistics were saying that things, things can only get better. But they actually, again, the actual lived reality on the ground was that things were getting worse. Um, and as you say, the actual qualitative data we have, stories and anecdotes and so on, from that time suggests exactly that, that it was a bad time you know, for the working classes. And I think that we have a, we have a version of the condition of England question confronting us today. Um, but instead of being the industrial revolution, it's the kind of the globalist revolution, if you want, and specifically mass immigration and the effect that that's having on our country. Because again, we're told by the powers that be that these are all only ever net positives because line go up. But actually Things we see, yeah. Can only get better. Yeah, it's like, I can see how you were kicked out of your band. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't the singer. It's probably a smart choice. Yeah. But we see, we I walk around the streets, we all recognize that things are getting worse. Everybody, everybody knows this. Again, Carl in his article, The Decline, he says about how he speaks to people, you know, taxi drivers and so on, and says, you know, how do you, in general, not prompting them in any particular way, how do you think the things are going at the moment? And almost all the time, they will say, well, things are going down. And I've had the same experience. Outpouring of misery. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I always run all the foreign taxi drivers yeah. are like, I came, I came to work in England. I'm not in England. Yeah. It's mainly Nigerian dads and, and sort of Gen X boomer working class white guys that unanimously say, Sadiq Khan's ruining London. Everything's mm -hmm. really expensive. And they're coming out with all this. And stop nonsense. voting for him. But they're yeah. mainly not, though. They're not. It's, mm. You know which constituencies are mainly voting for Sadiq Khan. It's why he wants to import more of them. Mm. Yeah. And that's not a threat to democracy. <laughs> no. But, but to, to, to anchor it back to, to the point, it's that you can only take a perspective on the Industrial Revolution being an unmitigated good if you consider all of those anecdotes from those poor people as cannon fodder necessary for progress. Mm -hmm. So you ha can have absolutely no complaint about the, the state of your civilization while the international managerial class are bussing millions of people from the third world in to create a homogenous state at the moment. Because if you take that perspective on the past, then you are just more cannon fodder mm -hmm. for the utopia they're trying to institute. So actually, yeah, you do have to talk about on the ground how you feel about your place in history and how it is not determined according to the globalist trajectory. And this is where Oakeshott comes in, because the, the actual form of the condition of England question in the Victorian era and today is the same. It's the elite are telling us something, appealing to statistics, but we, the people, can see that what they're saying is not true. And that, I think, we can put down to essentially rationalism, what we today call managerialism. Yes. This attitude that the only knowledge that matters is that which can be expressed in the quantitative language of science. And technical. That there's, yeah, technical knowledge. And that practical knowledge, i.e. knowledge that can't be written in a book and expressed in language, something that's about the feel of the thing, the experience of the thing, something that takes time to cultivate. The kind you real. get driving around London and just looking at it as yeah. a cab driver. Yeah. I'm, None of that's real. It doesn't exist. I'm going to take a different tact on this mm -hmm. uh, to 
speak for the members of our audience who are presumably screaming right now mm -hmm. and say that were it not that our leaders and those in charge of the scientific professions were spiteful mutants and instead incredibly based and used rationalistic methods to actually follow the data to the conclusions that it actually leads to rather than to justify their lefty gay predispositions, then science could and would be an incredible force for good that could take us to the based stars and we could have the Hitchens uh, Britocracy up on Mars. You'd still be alienated from the land which you've micromanaged. It would come, with, it, it would come with its own problems, but if we had people who actually cared about the scientific method and believed in the uh, conclusions that a lot of uncomfortable science and uncomfortable elements of science lead you to, then we could find ourselves in a good position. Better position, but not the perfect one. So you need to beware... Not let the perfect be the enemy of the good, my friend. Yes, but, 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 the, but the technical knowledge mindset that has infected the managers is that the idea they can steward us to perfection if only they get the right data. So we need to err away from that. I agree with you, Connor. Sorry, Harry. No, that's, that's I see. I see what you're saying. That's it's absolutely a good, fine. It's a good I'm just point. saying, if we had based science instead of cringe science yeah. that we have right now, then we could do many good things. And I agree that it would be better. But again, ultimately, it does come down because you know you imagine the base. I'm not science. giving up toothpaste. I'm sorry. <laughs> Fair enough. Probably got fluoride in it. <laughs> I use non-fluoride toothpaste. Okay, well, based. But you imagine you know the 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 based sort of uh, scientific rulers that you're talking about. It's, it's, it still won't have been the science, looking at the science, that will have had them arrive at the positions they think, did. Do you not look at the Imperium, Warhammer, and think, God, that would be so cool? Well, yeah, uh, yes, again. <laughs> but, but the point is not, it's, it's, it comes down to the individual people occupying the positions of power. The science Sorry doesn't the matter. But the, so Sorry, the point is, <laughs> you're right. We're, we're really running over yeah. time, and I'm just thinking we need to get to my segment, yeah. so I don't, don't mean to derail too badly. That's all right. We'll, we'll spin on. But I think the point is, what matters, again, back to Schmidt, is the individual people occupying the positions of power. The science is neither here nor there. Um, but anyway, I think that the point that this is all driving at is the idea of lived experience. Because Mr. Monitoring Bias, he says that lived experience is a BS metric that doesn't matter. But actually, what Carlisle is talking about in um, Chartism, and what you were talking about when you were appealing to the sort of Dickensian um, vision of Victorian England, that is lived experience. That's the lived experience of the English community. And I don't think we should give that concept up to the left, because the constituencies that they appeal to when they talk about lived experience are completely meaningless, like the LGBT community. The black community, yeah. like these, these are just mindless categoricals. Whereas the English community, that's actually that's a category that actually has some moral and uh, what would you say? They're situated in the time and place, and therefore have legitimacy. We exactly. Point to them. Yeah, they, we occupy a geographical space. We we occupy. We share a history. We share a language, and we fundamentally we share an experience. The English, uh, the, you know, the English way of life is a is a thing. It's a distinct thing that exists in the world, and if we can't look at the experience, the lived experience of the English community and derive uh, conclusions about what we should do, well, what are we going to do? Like, where, where, are, where do we get our conclusions from, if not that? Um, anyway, I think we, we can leave it there because we are, we are running we over, are as you rightly running pointed out. Um, but the point is, statistics are not the whole story and you shouldn't rely on these kind of rationalistic um, methods. And actually, an aesthetic, qualitative experience is the best place to derive your conclusions about the world from. All right. Okay. Um, 
I'll try and get through this one. We'll just have to run over a little bit. Yeah, we'll have to run over a little bit, but I'll try and get through this one relatively quickly in that case. So um, what do you guys think British identity is? Because I, for one, think that it's nothing to do with your heritage, your background, Mm -hmm. how long your family's been here, or your values or culture or anything like that. I think it's bowing down and praising and worshipping our beautiful, big old NHS. Well, for the last four years, for the last four years, I lived uh, in Runnymede. So where Magna Carta was signed. And there was a mural uh, put up in 2015, 800 years of uh, Magna Carta, celebrating British values. Do you want to know what they were? They were democracy, inclusion, diversity. Uh, What else? Tolerance. Because the Magna Carta was signed in the name of democracy, Mm. if I remember correctly. No, wait, no, actually, no, it wasn't. That was ex- almost exactly the words of Suella Braverman and Michael Gove at the National Conservative Conference. Mm-hmm. The 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 uh, the other thing that I was going to say that I've now immediately forgotten, so you can continue. <laughs> okay, that's absolutely fine. So I think it's relevant to point you all to a rather old article at this point. It's over a year old, but as relevant as ever. Which, is, uh, in fact, actually, it's almost it's over two years old at this point. Bloody hell! So it's from Rory, who is our editor and a, a great chap, writing about how, despite its virtues. It's time to let the NHS die. At this point, I would ask what virtues, but I understand that he was taking a somewhat more fair track than I would. I, I this is one that you can read for free, but it does have a audio version if you want to subscribe to our silver tier, where you're able to listen to all of the audio versions narrated by the wonderful John Crow. I now remember what I was going to say. Oh, the excellent. NHS itself is actually a symbol of British decline because the reason the NHS exists is because we petitioned the Americans for the funding for it. And at the time, the Americans said, okay, well, if you can sell off parts of the empire, like Palestine, so we can deal with the current post-war refugee problem, then you can have the money as part of the Marshall Plan to set up the NHS. So actually, the British Empire was discontinued to set up the NHS. So I hate it even more. Yes, but to the central theme of this segment that we're doing right now, I would think it's important to draw everybody's attention to something that is glaringly obvious, which is that our leaders um, not only are terribly short, apologies, that skipped across. (laughs) Although, to be fair, I don't even need to point to that picture. Look at that manlet. What? Barely the size of Kimmy Badenoch. So um, they are not exactly representative of the British population because we currently have a, a, a prime minister in England who is of Indian Hindu origin. And in Scotland, they have a first minister who is of Pakistani origin. So Hindustan, Pakistan will eventually come clashing again, just in a completely different geographic location. London so, as well. It's only a matter of time. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've already seen the streets of Leicester well, Sadiq last Khan. year. Sadiq I know Khan's Sadiq Khan as well. Pakistan. So, you know, we've got Creator Clash for YouTubers. I think we need some kind of similar boxing event for uh, Rishi Sunak versus Sadiq Khan. Who really rules the roost in London? That's they're the in, question. They're I in the same to. midget weight class. Yeah. They actually are as well. Um, so this is back from 2022, September last year, talking about, oh, uh, America looking over and going, the conservatives sure are diverse, aren't they? Yes, this is not a good thing. Britain needed a new prime minister because it was so fed up with Boris Johnson. So fed up, in fact, that the next prime minister may look nothing like Johnson. That is white, male, and privately educated. No, what happened was the insiders of the Tory party who were eligible to vote for this did not vote for Rishi Sunak. They voted for Liz Truss, who was so against the regime in that she wanted to minorly lower taxes that they decided to manufacture a gigantic economic crash so that they could instead put in the establishment choice, which was Rishi Sunak the whole time. And uh, yeah, people don't want Rishi. People don't like Rishi. He was imposed on us. 
He was basically the uh, colonial choice for, I think I saw someone earlier describing him as the Indian Viceroy of mm-hmm. Britain. That's what we've got. And every single time you see any photograph with him, once again, not a particularly imposing figure, but earlier on this year, they decided to stand him next to the tallest MP in Britain, who, to be fair, is six foot nine. But you end up with this, where Rishi Sunak somehow manages to look like a cardboard cutout of himself. It's very difficult to even get both of them in properly in the picture at the same time. And look at that. Look at that. We are being humiliated on a daily basis by having this midget as our leader. For goodness sake. He's, he's the, he's the only politician over. in the world who could occupy the highest office in the land and still get a left swipe on Tinder. I suppose so. But seriously, Peter Dinklage could tower over this man, really. And uh, one of the interesting things that happened the other day is that uh, in, in the UK, some elements of the British community were celebrating Indian Independence Day. Right, so more of the demise of the empire. Yes, the demise of the empire, because that was a big hit to the British empire, because India was one of our largest territories and one that we'd been administering for a few hundred years in the mid-20th century when we eventually lost it. Yeah, sorry about stopping all the bride burning. Yes, and uh, Rishi Sunak decided to go to a uh, to greet a crowd at the uh, let me see Cambridge University on Tuesday on Indian Independence Day, uh, where he said that he was not there as prime minister but as Hindu. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. This seems like somewhat split allegiances for a prime minister of Britain to have that he is celebrating a historic defeat of the British Empire, mm-hmm. but also by his native culture. Also a religion which institutes a political caste system which is totally anathema to the British political system. Like This is what David Starkey was called racist for saying when he said, our current prime minister is outside of the constitutional and historical tradition of Britain. It's like, yeah, because he doesn't share its religion or customs, mm-hmm. frankly. I mean, we sidelined Catholics for less. That was your first mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was. I think we're doing better under the Stuarts at this point, but there's clear dual loyalty going on here because he finds himself split between two worlds. Let's not forget that he was, what was it, living in America and, uh, and working for Goldman Sachs before he came to Britain. He has no allegiance to this country. He was still has applying for other... US citizenship while considering running for prime minister. Yes. Reassuring, isn't it? Yep. Well, he, he's a man from anywhere. He has no ties to this country beyond seeing as an, an economic zone where he can bring in uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of his fellow Indian citizens to come over here so that they can also take advantage of this economic zone for as long as it lasts before the collapse, which is inevitable, but maybe not in our lifetimes. So here's the article talking about it that just goes on. He added how a golden Ganesha sits, uh, sits gleefully on his desk at 10 Downing Street. Gleefully? Yes. It's like he knows it's wrong. Well, it's, it's how delightful. Very different to President Trump, who had a bust of Churchill in the Oval Office. Like yeah. when the fact of our, our former colony is more patriotic than, than our current prime minister is, we're in dire straits. Mm. And it wasn't just Rishi either. All of the Indians that we've imported decided to go around London on their motorbikes because they're all delivery drivers. <laughs> For our audio listeners, Harry's not exaggerating. They're, they're Every all... single one of them has a pizza delivery box on the back of their motorbike. And they're all flying Indian flags. So either this is something that they all set up so that they could celebrate Indian Independence Day together, or there's one really fat, hungry guy who's <laughs> waiting for his dozens and dozens and dozens of pizzas. In either way, everyone's lunch is late. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly that. And it's a fleet of them. When did these people arrive here? Probably yesterday. Yeah. How, how much loyalty do they have to England? If 
the, the economic zone that is Britain were to collapse tomorrow? Would they stick around to help rebuild, as we're told so often that the foreigners did after World War II, when we were 99.8% white British? Mm. Or will they go home? Because they have a different home to go to and leave us all in the lurch. But Harry, who will deliver the pizzas? I will. I'll do it myself. Just watch me. I don't even need a motor. Get me my push bike. I really hate this. I, I've talked about this with a lot of people. This idea that like British people, English people are in some like somehow better than better than being a pizza delivery driver. Yeah. Oh, English people don't want to do that kind of work. Like, why do you think that? I just don't get that. The reason there are more jobs now yeah. in demand for this is because we have more people that are ordering this stuff. It's like yep. so. I I got invited to the Bangladeshi caterers awards dinner thing. Basically, it's free mm. curry and some booze and like they 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 put on a night of entertainment that you're busy drinking and eating through and they give up and give a speech to I think Paul Scully gets invited every time because he's business minister mm. and they were insisting on more immigration because they were short on staff for their restaurants and it's like right but why are there restaurants because you keep importing Bangladeshi people over that only eat at the Bangladeshi restaurants mm. which means that you're manufacturing consent for increased demand for the restaurant, which means you need more chefs. But the line goes up. Yeah. The line goes up. Does the money go back into the community? No, it basically just circles around the Bangladeshi community yes. and doesn't benefit anyone of native British descent. But a line somewhere has gone up, and that brings a tear yeah. to a financial manager's eye. It's my blood pressure. That's what's going yeah. up. Yeah. You see all those uh, adverts in London as well on the tube and all that about these services that allow you to send yes. money overseas. And it's just like, just. Just say it. Just come out and say it. Yeah, just come, yeah, come out and say it. But then, they, then they turn around and say they're just as British as us. They have mm. a passport. They're just as le uh, loyal to Britain as we are, which is obviously Clearly. wrong. Every single one of these people understands that they enjoy legal protections that native English, Scottish, and Welsh people do not. Their entire identity within this country is set up oppositionally to ours. And whether they understand it explicitly, they operate from that assumption implicitly. Every single one of them knows that they can just pack up tomorrow and go home if this country collapses. Whereas mm. we cannot. We might be able to apply for American citizenship, but their southern border might just burst any day now. Yeah. So I don't know what, how much of a great idea that is. You left Northern Irish out of that, by the way, so I'd avoid bins and parked cars on your way home. Mm. True. <laughs> but speaking of our foreign leaders, let's see what um, the First Minister of Scotland, Hamza Yusuf, has been up to recently. Well, he released a... Guardian article the other day, a column. He can write. I know. I'm surprised he could read. Uh, but saying, misogynists like Andrew Tate hold sway over thousands of men and boys. Male leaders like me must address that now. Male leaders like Hamza Youssef. Can See, we just hard cut to that video of him falling off the scooter face first? Yes, yeah. we can. <laughs> <laughs> For full Very disclosure, I had no idea that was going to happen. That was good comedic timing there. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, we can. So you guys may not like it, but this is peak masculinity. <laughs> this is what peak masculinity. Just see that once more. Looks like just a few more times, I think. Can we can we edit the Mario Kart banana? <laughs> I've seen that edit a few times. It's nice that the guy next to him was running along with crutches, though, prepared for this eventuality. Yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah, what was going to happen? He's the one who set it up. It was me. It was, yeah. it was me. Find this man. Humza. Give him a medal. <laughs> I did it. Um, but. Let's see what this article says. And uh, can, you, can you give me a little indication of what your guess is for the actual well, contents of this article? Not really, because I'm surprised he's not pro-Tate because they're both Islamists. That is the interesting thing about the Hamza Yusufs and the Sadiq Khans is they're very, I mean, they're, they're at progressive once... progressive Islamists. Yeah, at once self-proclaimed Muslims. And also, I mean, presumably what he's going to say in this is you're, you're 
sort of bargain bucket feminist talking points that you we've heard millions of times over the last 20, 50 years. I'm wondering years. if this is a... I was going to use a phrase that I won't, but will this be a women's rights for Pakistan kind of situation where it's uh, women's rights and progressivism over here, but in the, in the homeland, mm. no, no, we like things just the way they are. Thank you very much. Yeah. Is that the sort of situation that's going on right now? So um, he, he, he says in here, it's pretty simple. Men have made our communities feel far too unsafe for far too many women. As first minister of Scotland, but more importantly, as a father of two girls, this is not a situation I am prepared to simply accept. Now, I'm sure he, there, there's always an implicit, there's a voice I hear in the back of my head. That's, it's Hums's voice. Whenever he says men in a circumstance like this, which is going white, yeah. white men well, I was have say made our communities feel far too unsafe. His daughters are exceptionally safe in Rochdale. Unfortunately, sure. uh, white girls are not. Yes, I'm sure they are. He says, let's be clear. This is not a situation unique to Scotland and or the UK. Women and girls the world over are suffering due to the actions of men. Well, see, I've looked into this quite a bit. And the safety levels for girls and women in the UK pre-1997 were actually pretty good. Mm. Overall, we were doing great. You had a few outliers, but you're never going to be able to eliminate all crime. But something happened that led to crime rates of violent crimes and other types of um, physical crimes, you could say non-financial crimes, tripling. I wonder what that was. I wonder what that was. I'm sure Humza will tell us later on. And he carries on, because most of this is just him whipping himself, raking himself over the coals, saying like, oh, I'm so sad that I wasn't an ally while I was younger. I made misogynistic jokes. I didn't call up my friends. I didn't go, mate, <laughs> at enough people when I was a teenager. And he's going on about abortion rights, Roe v. Wade, education for girls in Afghanistan. For God's sake. You can man. just, you can feel the Americanism here. Why is he talking about Roe v. Wade? You well, really you're the can. first minister of Scotland. Because did you know that to tackle violence against women and girls, we have to abort them in the womb? Hey. It's the only great solution. strategy. You can't be, you can't have someone rape you if you're dead. <laughs> That's going to go in lotus eaters out of context. <laughs> there you go. So uh, he carries on and says, while the influence and grip that celebrity misogynists such as Andrew Tate hold over thousands of young men and boys in Scotland should make us all uneasy, Simply finger-wagging is not the answer, which is why I spent three-quarters of this article finger-wagging <laughs> at men. It's our only response, then we will continue to fail to understand why men and young boys gravitate towards the Tates of the world, and we will fail to understand what lies behind the anger. Now, I'm not a fan of the Tates. No. The Tates will tell you how you're able to emotionally manipulate women into joining their CD cam business, but they're not going to teach you how to rape women. So he's kind of putting a false association between the two there. And once again, I'm not a fan of the Tates. I think there are better ways to, to promote masculinity to young boys and young men. But there is a reason that he is so popular, which is that he is addressing men as they want to be addressed. He's addressing young men as they want mm. to be addressed and not wagging the finger at them like Humza Yusuf. Well, we, we talked here. about this last time, didn't we? We talked about Tate and masculinity and so on. If you, you know, if you present your average young man with the two options, so you've got Andrew Tate saying, be a warrior, have sex with loads of girls, cars bling money and so on. Or you get Humza Yusuf saying, be a pathetic well, well, worm do you want to hear no what spine. Humza Yusuf's advice is? Let's hear he it. Says, yeah. As men, we must listen. Oh. We must learn 
we must also demonstrate what a positive male identity looks like to young boys and other men. So what he's saying there is, as men, we must become women. There is not a grown man in the country today who has not been guilty of problematic behaviour. Well, actually, Harry, your solution is adopted in Iran. <laughs> what solution is that, you're suggesting? Men, men to become women. Oh, yes, actually, that's true. That is what they do over there. So Humza Yusuf is um, kind of on message there for his religion. Inshallah, brother. Inshallah. Uh, Scotland has shown global leadership on a range of issues, such as climate emergency. As First Minister, I want Scotland to also lead tackling one of the root causes of gender-based abuse. Toxic masculinity. God, is it 2015? To build a healthier, safer, and more equal society. So given his track record, I'm going to assume that he's just going to ban yeah. liking people like Andrew Tate, which would be completely on point for him, to be perfectly honest. It would line up with everything else that he's done since becoming first minister and since before he was first minister as well. Completely useless, pathetic man. And just, just one more time. Oh. Beautiful. I mean, if nothing else, that article shows that, because I, I don't think he believes a single word of what he said there, but he's oh, very good at the sort of regime duck speak. Very good at it. Yeah. Indeed. Absolutely, he is. And uh, there was more that I was going to go over, but honestly, we don't really have that much time, and I'd like to go over the video mm -hmm. comments. And so, so I'll have to cut this as a very short segment for everybody watching at home, but I will follow up with the other information that I was going to go over probably in the weekend. So, so you just left everyone with a really bad taste in their mouth listening to Hamza Yusuf saying This about, isn't a bad taste in your mouth. Look at this. This is comedy gold. This puts a smile on my face. True, I bet he has a great taste in his mouth about the linoleum floor. So, yep, there you go. And with that, let's move on to the video comments, shall we? Right, let me just... Oh, yeah, actually, bear with Jack. Right, I'm just going to hold it in there and hover it because this is really dignified. That's fine. That's absolutely fine. We're a professional setup here, folks. Fair. Never forget that. Okay, I read it. Not sure if I still believe it. Man spiked dates drinks with Viagra because he was worried they had a penis. <laughs> Is that where we are now? Yes. I mean, but like, there is a certain twisted logic to it in today's climate. But you can tell. Like, you yeah. can tell. Like, Sorry. Are you suggesting there's phenotypical differences between men and women? I'm suggesting if the Adam's apple is bulging out the throat of your six foot four date, then yeah. Yeah, but the, but the Viagra is just to make sure if you catch any other bulges. <laughs> Do you see uh, Alex Jones praising Blair White? Yes. I, I, I did extensively. As someone who's interviewed Blair White, what did you think? Yeah. Uh, I have also seen many clips of Alex Jones vehemently denying ever having watched trans pornography in the past. Right, okay. So that was that was very, very I mean, in his defense, he has admitted to being retarded, so. <laughs> I like Alex Jones. Yes, but so he, do he I. Miss, he misses the mark yeah. on a few subjects here and there. Although there's still classic with that, that there's still wonderful compilations of oh, yeah. his, um, what was it, when he was in court and they said, you've spread conspiracy theories regarding yeah. pedophile rings running the world. What? You mean like Jeffrey Epstein? Yeah. Have you, did you hear about his defense as to why he showed up late to his divorce hearing? Go on. He said, I ate a big bowl of chili yesterday. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he looks like he would as well. Yep. All right, let's read some of the comments then. So, Null Null says, always nice to see Charlie again. Appreciate he is now a regular addition to the Lotus Eaters. Cheers. We appreciate it as well. Thank you for Great coming to on. Uh, Alexander Dake says, Harry, excellent appearance on Oron McIntyre's podcast yesterday. Hope you two get together again in the future. 
thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Oron's a great guy. So uh, if you've not watched that, you can find it on Oron McIntyre's YouTube channel. Please watch it. I think it was a good chat. So for the first segment, the letter M is for blank. Says, remember kids, it's only democracy if you win. Yes. Pretty much. Sophie Liv, just a reminder, the Nazis pressured people into supporting the party by asking, you're not a fascist, are you? Did they actually? I've not heard that before. People were so afraid of being called a fascist, even back then, that they would rather be a Nazi. And even doing Mao, the big thing to take people down was, you're not far right, are you? I think you're far right. And if you watch the book club that I did with Callum about the uh, Cultural Revolution, uh, there's a great excerpt that Callum went through there where after a lot of his economic policies started to fail, Mao turns around and said, I am now a rightist. We yep. need to eliminate the far left subversives in our party. Oh, fantastic. This tactic is as old as the first cultural revolution, the Bolsheviks too. Are you far right? Do you go against our doctrine? Don't you believe in the cause? Here's a bullet to your head. Or an ice pick. In fact, I didn't know about that thing uh, with the Nazis at first, but I do know that fascism only really began to be associated with national socialism after the two of them aligned yeah. in the outbreak of they are distinct the ideologies. World yes, well, fascism yeah. recently didn't even have a racial component until it was encouraged. They actually mm. took in Jews who were escaping from Germany in yep. the mid-1930s. Very interesting. Mussolini also said that it was like all the race stuff was just bollocks, basically. Mm. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. An external guy that started talking about the Nephilim and how they were the ancestral um, people of Italy and that, and Mussolini was like, what? It, yeah. it, it is funny that um, in fascism viewed from the right, uh, Evola talks about how annoyed he was that Mussolini, after speaking with Hitler and Hitler as well, started to talk about the purity of the Aryan race and Evola's just like, we're Mediterranean. What the hell are you yeah, talking yeah. about? What are you talking about? Uh, Omar Awad says, tell me you don't believe in democracy and your ideas are crap without saying it beats political opponents. Lord Nerevar. He who makes peaceful protest impossible makes violent revolution inevitable. The German government think that by banning the AFD, they're protecting some preconceived notion of democracy, but in reality, they seem to only be openly defying the wishes of the electorate. This doesn't end well. Well, what they what uh, what they're doing is they're just saying that no, you're not allowed a place at the table. Mm. That, that's what it is. Their, their preconceived notion of democracy has only ever been a facade so that they are the ones who remain in power. I would say, just on the AFD, from the images that we went through when you did your segment on them, they just, even just on an aesthetic level, they just look like your average kind of EU look, political party. They look like less Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just yeah. pretty normal. Like, they're not like esoteric neo-Nazi People go fascists. a lot like, just, by, uh, by aesthetics. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, I mean, the violent revolution, I mean, at the end of the day, what they're, what they're doing is they're refusing to take accountability for all of the terrible things that have happened to Germany since open borders. Mm -hmm. So yeah. those tensions will not go away. General Haiping, Chinese Internet Battalion. We all know this is going to end with a grand boogaloo. We're already at the point where the two political choices we are allowed to choose from are the nasty party oh, and I saw that. the right choice, with the right choice being a step further into the pits of hell. Yeah. Ethelstan95. So the left and their relation with national socialism is they like communism based on class, race, and sexual orientation, gender, Antifa, and sex neo-feminist. Is this because they have continued to pretend mid-Germany, mid-century Germans who called themselves socialists and were based on state totalitarian and are not left-wing, or because they no longer believe in states and want a borderless communist world? I, uh, I, I, I really don't like the whole Nazis were really left-wing uh, talking points because it's just, no, it's just not completely right. ineffective and not even really that true. The Nazis didn't really fall onto neatly onto the left right spectrum at the end of the day i've heard i've been in arguments with people who've tried to claim to me that hitler was woke hitler is uh, hitler was his own thing woke was its own thing trying to conflate the two is utterly ridiculous it's the problem with I, yeah with ideologies is you know i appreciate where you're coming from 
Uh, but I just don't think that it really maps on because realistically, at the end of the day, like fascists, they were vehement anti-communists. Mm. Yeah, but like this is the problem with ideology is or Nazism. If you want to put it that way. Yeah, Nazism is first and foremost a German phenomenon. It's rooted in that particular time and place in those particular circumstances. And woke is the same. It's an American ideology that's yes. really imported all over the I mean, global just, American at, empire. At the end of the day, woke is the export of America to get your politicians to invite all of the third world population mm. into Western cultural centers. And by their disenfranchise the native populations. Mm. For all, for everything you want to say that he did that was terrible, that's not what Hitler was trying to do. No. So you can't call him woke, nor can you call him proto-woke. I just, I, I find that frame uh, annoying, although I understand where it comes But if you consider, they're all Gnostics. <sighs> Shut up, Lindsay. <laughs> uh, let's move on to the next segment. So uh, about statistics, RJL says, data and statistics have become something of a wall that stops politicians from actually observing the human component that is detrimental to understanding the hardships of the country. I urge you all to do a book club on Neil Postman's techno... Technopoly. I've been told about this. Yeah. As this was written in the 90s and predicted everything we've been going through in the last 10 years. I've not heard of it. I've read an extract mm. as part of the Harvard course thing, so it might actually be worth going over at some point. I'll take these if you want. Yeah, go on. Uh, the exchange between Carl, sorry, this is Le French S. Charlie. The exchange between Carl and this I.O. guy perfectly reflects the difference between the people and the bureaucrats. The bureaucrats use spreadsheets and statistics to keep track of their policies. Bureaucrats only make decisions to improve their spreadsheets, not to improve the real world. But the people live in the real world. Mm. Yeah, spot on. Um, Ethelstan95, materially, we are all richer. Cars, TVs, mobile phones, and no one truly goes hungry. But we are spiritually poor. Churches are empty. People lack a national identity of any... People lack a national identity of any kind. Communities don't exist, and people do not know their roles within them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you said about Evola just now, and uh, he talks about... I think the phrase he uses is like bovine. <laughs> We've got bovine satisfaction, as in we, we, we're comfortable. Or, in, or even Nietzsche's idea of the mass man who yes. adheres to slave morality. All he wants is his material needs met, which are obviously yeah. important, but he has no desires mm -hmm. beyond that. Yeah, we have nothing stopping us hooking ourselves up to the experience machine. Yeah. So RJL, don't forget about shrinkflation, where Twixes have gotten smaller whilst the price has gone considerably up. Oh, don't We've been seeing me. this across the board with food, especially with chicken, where you think you're buying a plump bird, only to find out it's a quarter that of the size when cooked. This is all good. I don't know our experience, lads. Kevin Fox. I thought you were a Catholic, man. Attempting. <laughs> Kevin Fox. First thing I always check when bombard bombarded with statistics, who paid for them? That will give you a clear indicator on how reliable the statistics are. The one thing statistics prove convincingly is that statistics prove nothing. Yeah, absolutely. California refugee. My family home was $100,000 in 1999, new built. It's now falling apart, but worth around a million dollars now. Bloody hell. I mean, you, you're in California, so I mean, California yeah. house prices are ridiculous from everything I've read about it. Middle class can't afford a home in their hometowns anymore. Property tax alone would be between 10 and 20K a year. And yet the housing situation in most of America is still thousand times better than yeah. anything we have in the UK. So Robert Longshaw, there are three kinds of lies. Lies, damned lies, and statistics. Yep. And a California refugee again, data can be flawed even before they try to manipulate it. In San Francisco, how many of the 25 thefts a day do you think the store reports anymore? Yeah. Unless there is extreme violence, it's zero. Yeah. Uh, Lord Nerevar, I saw Carl's interaction on Twitter. It's depressing how many people will gleefully accept the graph they see on the news over the observable reality around them. As you say, Dan, the TV is a primary sense organ. Yes. yes. And uh, Arizona Desert Rat says, I find it interesting that a couple of the biggest songs are country songs. And yes, that is how the guy really sounds. I believe he is from Appalachia. 
Yes, I believe so as well. Uh, the last few comments that we've got here, Lord Nerevar says, I reject the idea... I reject the notion of identity entirely. At this point, it's just irrelevant in most settings at this point, and the popular obsession over it is holding back real society. Exchange. That's what the regime wants you to do. I was going to say, I be, they want you to be a dislocated, individual, fungible consumer unit. No, anchor yourself in time, place, family, faith, and community. Yeah, as with lived experience, I don't think we should give the left the notion of identity because it is extremely important don't, to, don't to who become, somebody is. Don't become the universal man that globalism wants you to yeah. be. You have a family, you have a history, you have a heritage, and you have a culture mm. that you come from from. It is not wrong for you to be proud of all of that and to try and live up to the expectations that puts on you. That doesn't mean you should go taking claim or credit for things that your ancestors did, but you should try and to, try to live up to the legacy that that puts on you. No I, I think ever. Mm. Yeah. Uh, although I do understand the tiring nature of it all at this point. And uh, Lefranche S. Charlie says, it was inevitable the UK would get conquered by its colonies. You guys are just too nice. It wasn't. It wasn't inevitable. It's the fact that after World War II, uh, we're basically a vassal state from the U.S. So our political leaders kind of have to be the weak-willed worms who would allow it to happen in the first place. I mean, once once again, just like before we go, for God's sake, do you really think that this man is going to stand up in any meaningful way to mass immigration? No, this man might. I'd like to see this man at the borders with a claymore, but this man, no, that's not what's going to happen. But we've gone over a little bit, but I think it was worth it. I think that's all we've got time for. Charlie, do you want to direct people to where they can find you? Uh, yep. So you can find all my work on my website, which is cfdowns.uk. And you can follow me on Twitter and elsewhere at cfdowns underscore. Thank you all very right. much. Thank Let's. you very much for joining us. Thank you for jumping onto this podcast. I think it was very entertaining and very interesting. And thank you very much for watching. We'll be back again tomorrow at one o'clock. Till then, take care.